Welcome to the Pulp Nostalgia Audiocast. This week we have The Terror Mummy by Jack B. Kramer, originally published in the June 1940 Strange Stories. Kramer had a relatively minor career in the pulps, penning a couple dozen stories in the 1930s and 40s. He would go on to have a long career as a television and radio writer, and was elected to the Philadelphia Broadcast Pioneers Hall of Fame after his death. This story is also included in our recent release, Pulp from the Pyramids, which features pulp tales of mummies in ancient Egypt. You can find it in print or ebook formats at Amazon and other bookstores, or order directly from us at a discount. And that direct link is in the show notes. The Pulp Nostalgia Audiocast is a Brick Pickle Media production, copyright 2021. For more from Brick Pickle Media, visit brickpicklemedia.com. You can find a link to all of our books in our entire online store on the website. And just a reminder, if you like the show, please leave feedback on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And with that, on with the show. The Terror Mummy by Jack B. Kramer Hate and revenge plague Kursov for 20 years, but greater evils lurk in the Egyptian crypts. The rain had stopped at last, leaving the street a glistening black groove of shiny asphalt that rippled and quivered under the dim street lamps and the keen wind as though it were a snake come alive. It was a queer sort of street, anyway, and it seemed to force itself into this musty neighborhood, writhing by the moldering old flats and decrepit buildings of a departed era, and finally winding up in a baffled dead end overlooking the oily and ugly waters of the East River. There was a three-story house near the end of this sinister street, an old brick and sandstone affair which can best be described as the house of the bad odor. A sign of tarnish and half-obliterated gold letters creaked dismally in the wind above the worn steps of the stoop. It read Kursoff's Private Museum. But the old building was not as dilapidated within as it appeared from without. There were well-made locks in the strong doors and serviceable shutters for the windows. Ivan Kursov took no chances where concerned his antiques and art treasures. He stood now just within the door, peering out like a gnome at the deserted street. Kursov was a short and round little man with a stubby gray beard and a head as shiny and bared as the thoroughfare at which he looked. His eyes were a moist and watery brown, his nose bulbous, his teeth yellow and stained. Clothes always hung and draped themselves clumsily on his chubby body. On the hat rack in the corner was a kind of faded green fedora one might associate with an impoverished poet or threadbare philosopher, certainly not with a museum owner. Yet Kursov was neither poet nor philosopher. He was a dealer in curios and antiques. Collectors had implicit faith in his integrity and paid exorbitant prices for its curios and object they art. Nobody ever suspected that any of his pieces were fraudulent. His skillfully manufactured papyri delighted Egyptologists. Counterfeit scarabs, bogus manuscripts, and ancient cut glass, imported from Bavaria, were snapped up eagerly. In 15 years, Kursov had amassed a tiny fortune by bamboozling a select public. However, Kursov had not always been so opulent, so respected, so clever in his forgeries. There was one bitter pill at his ointment. Some 20 years ago, he had been caught red-handed in a swindle by a raw-boned, young, plain-clothes cop. And Kursov had spent three years up the river in meditation on the theorem that crime does not pay. That, of course, was in the day when he was a slender and bore the name of Rosinski. Now, however, nobody knew the antique dealer Kursov as the swindling Rosinski. But Kursov remembered with a bitterness that was almost appalling. He had never forgotten the young Irish policeman who had tripped him up by sheer luck. And Ivan Kursov, deep in his heart, had vowed revenge. The years had not blunted his hatred. Rather, they had intensified it. A man came along the quiet street, his dark topcoat buttoned up about his burly figure against the clutching fingers of the wind. Kursov's face lighted up with an oily smile, and he quickly opened the door to admit his expected guest. Come in, Inspector Pankhost, he said heartily. I was afraid the storm would detain you. Come right along to my private study, where we can have a glass of wine while we talk. 
Weather never stops policemen and postmen, chuckled Pancoast, divesting himself of his damp overcoat. Ensconced in a big leather chair which had come from medieval Florence, all of Kristoff's furniture and furnishings in his private office were authentic, the big inspector smacked his lips appreciatively over the mellow wine and came to the point. So you have an unusual object. I curiously feel sure my brother want to add to his collection. Exactly, Inspector. Here, let me fill your glass again. Yes. Boyd Pankos will be crazy to add this object to his Egyptian collection. I want you to see it first. I don't know much about this sort of stuff. I don't know why you didn't send it for my brother instead of me. Oh, I will, but I thought that you should see it. All right, Kursoff, what is it? The art dealer waited till the inspector had finished his drink. The object is, he said slowly, the mummy of Ptolemy the Fourth. Which, uh, <sighs> means little to me, said Pankos drowsily. It's, uh, warm and cozy in here after that raw wind. Yes, isn't it? About the mummy inspector. You see, the story connected with it goes back some time, twenty years to be exact. The officer frowned. Twenty years? Egyptian mummy ought to go back 20 centuries, aren't it? Ah, quite so, but this is an unusual mummy. In this case, the story begins 20 years ago with a struggling Russian artisan who was trying to gain a foothold in this country. He was succeeding when a young pup of a copper luckily stumbled into a little deal which violated the silly laws of this country. And Rosinski was sent to prison. Ah, you look much surprised, Inspector. Would you remember that far back to such an insignificant episode in the life of an Irish policeman? But of course not. So I'll tell you. I was Rosinski. Queer, now that I think of it. That young cop's name was the same as yours. Pancoast. The police inspector uttered a gurgling cry and tried to struggle to his feet, but he was powerless to move. Every muscle in his body was paralyzed. Ah, uh, it is the wine. Don't alarm yourself, my friend, or try to fight it. There is no use. It won't kill you for an hour, and meanwhile there is no known antidote for it. So just relax and listen. I want you to understand my little joke. The poison inspector's bulging eyes traveled to his wine glass and then back to the smirking, snarling face of his host. Only his eyes lived, otherwise he was completely helpless. I was not tricking you, inspector. Kursoff went on, gloating, his voice edged with passion and venom as he talked. I really am going to sell your brother that mummy. But how silly to offer the mummy to Ptolemy. Just between you and me, I haven't a genuine one but I can make a splendid imitation. After 20 years of hard work, I've learned to duplicate a great many things, and I discovered and perfected a new liquid chemical that tans and grays and desiccates the body until it mummifies beautifully. He paused and went on. I'm sorry we do not have time for me to demonstrate it to you because you won't live long enough. However, I want you to know that you are to be the mummy of Ptolemy. I shall sell your body to your brother next week. Ironic and poetic, don't you think? Also, I shall be able to dispose of all evidence of murder at the same time. The blood-suffused face of the police inspector almost quivered in his terrific attempt to burst the invisible bonds which chained him. He did succeed in unlocking his jaw the slightest bit. You! You! He gasped hoarsely, expelling the last vestige of air from his lungs. Then his eyes set and he went completely rigid, staring glassily at his enemy. Kursoff smiled to himself. He drew forth a handkerchief and mopped his perspiring brow. Had been an ordeal at that. He arose, stepped over to his victim, and passed his pudgy hand across the man's face. Inspector Pankos did not even blink. He felt for the pulse. It stopped. Mike Pankos was as dead as he would ever be. 
Breathing easier now, Kurzov set to work. Puffing and panting, he lifted his victim by the shoulders and then dragged him out of the office and along the first floor of the gloomy old museum to the stairs leading to the basement. Down these, he tumbled the body. They removed his coat and followed. Tripping coast of his clothes, Kurzov burned everything in the furnace. He clipped and shaved the head of the corpse and then pried open the jaws with a steel tool and critically examined the teeth. Finding three which showed signs of modern dentistry, he took a hammer and a small chisel and knocked them out. Then he studied the profile of the rigid face and methodically used the hammer to smash the nose. All these preparations done with, he opened a large, old-fashioned safe in his workroom and took out a stone crock, a vile-smelling, almost viscous gray liquid. With a paintbrush, he began painting the corpse with the fluid. Several times, as the devastating liquid instantly started pulling the skin dry and tight over the bones, the dead detective's legs or arms twitched in a spasm. Kursov wanted to scream and run from the house, but biting his lip in sadistic determination, he forced himself to complete his gruesome task. And at last it was done, the body visibly shrinking and turning a dull, dun color. Within an hour, it looked as though it had slept for centuries in an ancient crypt in Egypt. Now came the artistic part. Kursov carefully wrapped the body in yards and yards of grave cloth he had taken beforehand from a worthless but genuine mummy. He added spices and the debris from the mummy he had previously unwrapped and then placed his new creation with an ornate sarcophagus which stood ready. Ptolemy IV was all ready. All Kursov had to do now was wait a few days for his mummy to age. Cleaning up everything carefully, burning all odds and ends in the furnace, Kursov placed the lid on the sarcophagus and went upstairs. He started violently and shivered as he thought he heard a hoarse, gurgling voice saying, You! You! Ridiculous, he knew. But he scurried up to the first floor like a frightened rabbit, locking the basement stair door behind him with trembling hands. He didn't sleep any that night. In fact, there wasn't any night left. The first pale gray of a haggard dawn greeted him as he climbed to his living quarters on the third floor. But he was happy. After 20 years, he consummated a clever and diabolical revenge. It was five days before Kursov dared contact Boyd Pancoast. During the interim, he watched the newspapers for information about the missing inspector. There was only one brief item that stated the inspector seemed to have left town for a few days. It was a disappointment, but such was fame. Pancoast wasn't even missed, not even by his brother. On the fifth day, Boyd Pancoast came at Kursov's request to view his mummy. Kursov had prepared carefully for this occasion. He had taken two of his hired attendants to bring up a sarcophagus from the basement and place it upright against the wall in the midst of the Egyptian relics in the left wing. It made an effective-looking museum piece. But Kursov wasn't as happy as he had been. Like a fog, an unseen but distinctly felt cloud had been slowly gathering about this weird old building on the dispirited, snaky street. The days weren't so bad. There was the help around. But at night, Kursov was alone with all these relics of the moldering past and the grave. He felt that a ghastly familiar, growing stronger day by day, was dogging his footsteps wherever he went. It was ridiculous, of course. Many a man had been killed in thousands of ways, and nothing like this had ever happened. But Kursov couldn't shake off this unseen shadow which settled more closely about him, seemed to strangle him a little more each day. Kursov hadn't removed the lid of the sarcophagus since the night he had placed it on the mummy case. This morning, as he waited for the arrival of Boyd Pankos, he dismissed his help and removed the lid himself. He screamed, trembled like a sapling in a high wind, almost letting the lid crash to the floor. The shaven-headed and gray, battered features of Inspector Pankost, although unrecognizable now, were twisted in a hideous, leering grin, as though Pankost knew a secret Kursov didn't. It was too late to try to change the features. They were set in a mask like iron. An undefinable, fetid odor emanated from the case. By the sacred icon of St. Peter, whispered Kursov. I'll be glad to get rid of this thing quickly. And a ghostly echo seemed to burst into being within his brain like a bursting star shell expands in the sky. You, 
you. The arrival of the Egyptologist brought Kursov out of his jitters. The big man, older and grayer, but an unpleasantly close counterpart of his dead brother, examined the mummy carefully. Kursov regained his composure and rattled off his prepared story about how his mummy came into his possession. It was a good story, and the trappings were authentic. All right, agreed Boyd Pankos at length, sniffing as though he smelled something too. I'll purchase this mummy. What do you ask for it? Ah, $3,000, said Kristoff, and it's a bargain at that price. There's no doubt that it's genuine. But isn't your price a little too high? Ah, I didn't get the mummy for nothing, Mr. Pancoast. No, no, I suppose not. Well, never saw a mummy with such a facial expression before. Well, I'll take it. I'll write you a check, and I'll send a movie man to pick up the sarcophagus the first thing in the morning. I'll come myself, just to take care of things, you know. Of course. But why don't you have your your brother come or send a couple of policemen to guard it? And in the back of his mind, or was it loud in the middle of the chamber, there sounded the strangled words. You! You! But boy, Pankos was deaf to this. I don't know where the inspector is, Pankos admitted. He's disappeared temporarily. Temporarily was good. Kursov led the way to his office, smiling to himself. After the Egyptologist had departed, Kursov began wishing he had taken his purchase with him. It gave him an eerie, ugly feeling that the thing remained here another hour. It was such a good joke. After a few more days of the inspector's temporary absence, the police and his brother would begin to get frantic. Kursov could imagine the search. Pankos would eventually offer a reward, of course. He was a wealthy man. The Bureau of Missing Persons tied itself into knots. The rest of the police department would run around in circles, and all the time the corpse of the frantically sought man would be grinning a sarcophagus in the Egyptologist's own private collection. What a perfect finale to a 20-year-old revenge. The only trouble was that nobody would enjoy the grim jest save Kirsoff and Mike Pankost. And Mike Pankost was dead. A sudden idea came to the little antique forger. Why not write the police an anonymous letter, throwing suspicion on himself? He would like to see what they would do. Certainly would bring them running. But no, no, that was a foolish, dangerous thought. They might unearth and uncover his real identity as Rosinski, and that might prove fatal. Instead, he must content himself with silent laughter. So he pulled the musty green fedora down over his bald head and trotted off to the bank to deposit Boy Panko's check. The sky was overcast, lowering when he returned home late in the afternoon. There wasn't much business. He did most of his transactions by appointment anyway. And he closed the museum early. A little before six o'clock, he had to start turning on lights all over the place. It grew dark with a positive vindictiveness that was almost personal. And, turn on lights though he did, the electric bulbs seemed to do little more than push the gloomy shadows back toward the corners of the various rooms where they seemed to lick their chops and slink and wait to leap out beyond him. Fantastic! It was rubbish! But still, Kursov felt stifled and terribly uneasy. After a lonely, lonely supper, which he prepared for himself, his frugality finally overcame his newly acquired reluctance toward the dark and slowly made his way downstairs to turn out the various lights. Such extravagance was idiotic. He avoided the left wing until last, slowly turning the first floor into an ocean of darkness, leaving only that last island of light to be flicked out just before he turned tail and scurried back to his quarters upstairs. Intensely disgusted with himself for such childish fears, he finally came to the wing of Egyptian curios and went about turning off the lights. As he was passing the alcove where the sarcophagus of the bogus Ptolemy IV leaned against the wall, he glanced furtively over his shoulder at the thing. With a start, he saw that he had forgotten to replace the lid in the hideous, 
mutilated face of Inspector Pankos leered straight at him. He gave vent to a little yelp of fear as he rested his hand on the light switch. Curse you. You'll be out of here before noon tomorrow. Damn you. So grin all you like. He flipped down the switch, plunging the room into darkness. There was just a faint glow of light from the bulb out in the corridor. He rolled to run for the dubious safety of that wan refuge when his eyes fell once more upon the Egyptian casket of his dead victim. And then, Kursov was too paralyzed to run. From the sarcophagus came that taintful fluvia of evil, a stifling odor which seemed to catch him around the throat and throttle him where he stood. But it wasn't this that caused his panic. A ghastly, greenish glow emanated from the figure of the bogus Ptolemy, a visible aura which outlined the body perfectly. It was, Good God! It was the spiritual entity, the Ka of Mike Pancoast! Kursov nearly went mad with fright. No! screamed aloud. No, it isn't so. My reason knows better. I won't believe it. You're dead. Do you understand? You're dead and you'll stay dead. You can't harm anybody. Drawn by his own rage and a deadly fascination, he crept slowly forward to confront the figure within the inclined mummy case. Laugh. Laugh and replace me the throne of thought to let me, but I have the last laugh after all. Three thousand dollars your brother paid me for you. A thousand dollars for each year you caused me to spend in the penitentiary and... He broke off in a strangled, gurgling scream as the vapor of the odor or something quite as intangible clamped on terrifically upon his throat. He fought against invisible bonds to escape, kicking and struggling madly, like a person in a nightmare who can't escape inevitable doom, although unbound. In a few moments, even the sound of Kursov's clawing and scratching nails upon the sides of the mummy case ceased, and silence, like that of the crypt, fell upon the dark chamber. It was broad daylight when the police found Ivan Kursov. Summoned by the attendants who could not arouse their employer, the police smashed down the front door and entered. They were almost overcome by the evil smell from the left wing, and their subsequent discoveries were even more horrifying. Commissioner Enfield summed matters up for Boyd Pankos when he got the Egyptologist down to his office a couple of hours later. It's horrible beyond words, Mr. Pankost. The medical examiner had to perform his autopsy on the mummy with a hammer and chisel, but... Well, we found your brother. Kursov had turned him into that mummy somehow... You have the written report in your hand. Kursov was stone dead when the squad got there, of course. Boyd Pankos read through the report without a muscle of his face changing. Then he looked up. The ways of providence are very strange, he said gravely. Embalming a human body in this fashion, Kursov imprisoned all the gases and liquids within. No wonder there was a generation of gas and a sort of miasmic fog such as your men describe. I imagine Kursov must have thought the ghost of Mike was after him. He simply died of heart failure. Yes, said the commissioner very gravely. That's what is written in the report for the record. It explains things satisfactory. But it doesn't explain how the hands of the mummy came to be clamped around Kursov's throat when he was found. And that is the end of this week's episode. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed our story. Please remember to leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And join us again next week for another episode of the Pulp Nostalgia Audiocast.